Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. As biblical Christians who affirm the authority of God's Word, we have an obligation to think intentionally about how we interpret the Bible so that we can effectively do theology for the glory of God. Today, we will reintroduce the concept of hermeneutics and define the terms. And I know what you're thinking, but let me tell you, you do need this in your life right now. The reality is that everyone uses hermeneutics every day, but very few people think critically about it. Everyone reads scripture with a hermeneutic, but not everyone brings a sound hermeneutic to the table, and therefore their theology may be unbiblical. Join the conversation with us as we work through these issues over the next several episodes. It is our aim to make this topic as interesting and understandable as possible. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Ken Choppity Chip Chop, as you're affectionately known around my condo, Michael Scott quote, there behind you I see a pack and play. Do you have something to update us uh, about your life? Butchered the sentence, but what's your life update regarding that pack and play? We have a baby. All right. We got another baby. Baby number four, Eliora Jail was born on the 18th. Okay, you have to say that name again because people just kind of heard it and then they said, wait, what did you just say? See, the thing about all of my children is that they all have strange and unusual names. Except Barnabas. So Barnabas is the least yeah, for, unusual. For those listening, Barnabas has the most normal name out of Ken's four kids. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> By a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. Eliora is the fourth child's name. It means, my God is my light. All right. So, and middle yeah. name, JL. Yeah. Which, of course, comes from Judges chapter 4, which is just a real inspiring story. Go check that out sometime. Especially if you're a fan of camping. Yeah, people keep warning me about tent pegs, but I I keep telling them, you know, I'm I'm not the bad guy, right? As Mm -hmm. long as I'm not Sisera, I should be okay. That's right. Yeah, don't name your next child Sisera. Will not do that. Okay, all right. (laughs) Oh, good. What else is going on? your, uh, Your church plant is meeting on Sunday mornings. And yeah. uh, that seems to be going well. It is. Praise God. He has been very gracious to us. Things are just going along swimmingly there. So I'm praising God for that. Preaching through Philippians. Yep. Great you've book. Done, you've done Philippians 2, the amazing Carmen Christie passage. Where are you now this Sunday? Still in chapter 2 and coming into the end of chapter 2 where Paul is giving us some practical examples of what this looked like in the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul has been urging the people to live lives of humble service to others, to be willing to set aside their own desires and their own uh, agendas for the sake of serving others, and presenting Timothy and Epaphroditus as two examples of what that looked like practically. Maybe you could name your next child Epaphroditus. Probably not. Oh, okay, all right. But it did come to my mind at one point. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be interesting to see if you ever get pets, what you name your pets. Maybe your pets will be named like Timothy, and your children will be named Epaphroditus. Well, once upon a time, I had three frogs. Would you like to know their names? Sure. Osborne, Montgomery, and Sebastian. Okay, that makes sense. Those are great (laughs) frog names. Yeah. Oh. So good. What about you? Anything else going on to, to share, though, before I give my update? Not really. I mean, it's, that's really what's uh, absorbing our life right now. Um, this Saturday, uh, my oldest daughter and I are both taking Taekwondo classes, and so we have a test to see if we'll rank up to the next belt on Saturday. So that's kind of fun and exciting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Which mm-hmm. would be for you, yellow? Yellow. Mm-hmm. That we just was started. a total <laughs> shot in the dark. I can't believe it. <laughs> was that, it right? really? Yeah. What's the order of the belts? So every martial art is different. So this isn't transferable across all arts, but with Taekwondo at this school, it's white, yellow, orange, and then I think, now this is where I'm a little fuzzy, so I think after that it's green, purple, blue, brown, red, black. Oh my word. I, I could have gotten that all wrong. But, wow, okay, that's a yeah. long road. Okay, this part of the, the episode was supposed to be short. My life update. Uh, I am in the same place doing ministry, uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, had a sermon on head coverings, a couple sermons on head coverings that happened Highlight recently. of the year, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lots of exciting things. Teaching through First Peter on Wednesday night. A lot of good stuff happening. My wife and I have had two children placed with us, a brother and a sister. Um, Hopefully by the end of the year, that adoption will be finalized. So we went from three children to five children in a very short amount of time. Um, And we're just keeping our schedules full with good things. So always all kinds of things you could elaborate on, always all kinds of... uh, negative news you could share but for the sake of this it's all good great (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) well we are excited about this this next several episodes that we have coming your way today we're kind of just laying the groundwork for the conversations that are yet to come but we've have some good conversations between Jeremy and myself but then also bringing in some interviews that we have conducted or will be conducting with some great uh, hermeneutical thinkers and there I just used a word hermeneutics and for some of you that may be a newer word it might be not it's probably not something that enters into your everyday vocabulary. So what are we talking about when we get into hermeneutics? And before we even dis- discuss that, we want to address, okay, why are we talking about this at all? Why is this important? And why should you listen to this conversation? There are very few things more boring than talking about how we read things. <laughs> like, what's that one famous book? Is it Adler, How to Read a Book? A book yeah. titled How to Read a Book. Right. Well, this is a, a podcast series. It's pretty about- meta. Yeah, about how how to interpret things. Uh, So yeah, we realize this isn't the most exciting conversation that we could be having, but we want to do our best to make it somewhat exciting and helpful. And that all begins with just defining what we're talking about. So um, let's recognize from the outset that as Christians, it should be our mutual desire to faithfully interpret Scripture. That's what we want to do. We have a book that God has given us, We want to faithfully interpret it. We want to do it rightly. And to do that, we have to employ sound hermeneutical principles. And regarding this podcast, hermeneutics is very important because we have a chart and what separates primary doctrine from secondary doctrine on our chart is hermeneutics. Uh, You want to talk through what that means, Ken? Sure. So if, if you're not familiar with the chart, where have you been? dotheology.com slash chart, and you can access that, and feel free to make use of that. Download it. We make it downloadable and printable for in color and black and white, a couple different languages as well, if, you're, if you've got people that could use those. But the chart is really what has brought this podcast together. This is why we're talking about these things. And in there, at the very top of each column, there is a description of what each column means. And as you step out of the first column and into the second column, we discover that the difference is really an issue of hermeneutics. The things in that primary column, that, that first column, are things that, as long as you're actually bringing a, a sound hermeneutic to the table, one that, that we would say is valid, you're going to all agree on these things regardless of where you come out on different matters of theology like our eschatology or things of that matter. We're all going to agree on the gospel if we have a faithful understanding of Scripture. But when it comes to the second column where we're going to find some disagreements between people we would say are brothers and sisters in Christ, infant baptism or believer's baptism, how do we practice the Lord's table, 
a variety of issues such as that. The difference with those issues is a matter of hermeneutics. Differing hermeneutics lead to different conclusions in these areas. And in the same way, when you have a firm grasp on sound hermeneutical principles, you're going to be protected from false teachings that are actually errors of primary doctrine. There is a shared value of what is sound, what is valid in the realm of hermeneutics. And when you have a firm grasp on that, it's going to protect you from heresy, from false teaching. Uh, But in the secondary column, we understand that two people may approach the same text and walk away with different conclusions. I mean, everybody understands that in the Christian world. It happens all the time. And when that happens, it's because they do have some differences within the realm of hermeneutics. Some of those are very large scale, having to do with all of, really, our systematic theology uh, in certain areas. And some of them are really small. So, for instance, a really large scale one would be Israel and the church? How do you uh, view Israel and the church? Are they the same? Are they different? How does that play out in the future? That's a very big difference. Uh, An example of a very small-scale disagreement that doesn't have much bearing on much of anything, really, is um, did the Nephilim come from angels reproducing with actual human women, or were Nephilim 100% human? Okay, that's a debate that comes up a little bit in the book of Genesis and a couple other places in the Old Testament. doesn't really have a bearing on your systematic theology. So some are large-scale and some are small-scale. And one of those is a lot more exciting to talk about than the other one, <laughs> sometimes. Which one? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it depends on the day of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we approach this conversation, when we, we're talking about how we study Scripture, how we interpret it, how do we understand the words that are on the page— As we do so, we want to recognize and embrace the fact that we're bringing certain presuppositions to the table that are informing how we go about doing this. The first presupposition is that Scripture is the Word of God. It is the Word of God, and therefore it has authority over our lives. This is not just another book. This is not just a book that is just totally of human products. It is not anything like that. It is truly God's Word, and therefore there's authority over our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Scripture is also understandable. That means that there's a simplicity to the Word of God, that common men can understand the Word of God, uh, just by virtue of the fact that the New Testament was written in common Greek. It was written so that the common person could understand. Uh, It's clear, and it has uh, this theological word, which doesn't sound like what it means, the word perspicuity. You hear that word perspicuity, and it's it's like, oh, that sounds like something complicated. It actually means that Scripture is not complicated. (laughs) Uh, The the Scripture is clear. That's one of our presuppositions, is that the Scripture is clear enough to understand. And thirdly, that it's not contradictory. Yeah, there's consistency and harmony across all of Scripture. Now, we recognize that there's going to be some difficult texts that we'll wrestle through, but that doesn't take away from the the core understandability of Scripture and its non-contradictory nature. Yeah, it's harmonious. So if you're reading something in the Old Testament that seems like it opposes something in the New Testament or vice versa, well, that's wrong. There is no uh, opposition within Scripture. All of God's teachings are in harmony with one another. That is one of our presuppositions. So we should probably get into definitions of... uh, hermeneutics, the, the term itself, and we've got a few things queued up, a few different definitions queued up, as well as going over some of the main contemporary views of Bible interpretation. But before we do that, this episode is brought to you by the Do Theology Store. You can go to store.dotheology.com and check out all kinds of fun things that we have with our logo and some phrases on them. Uh, every time you purchase something there, you're supporting the podcast. All that money goes right back into the podcast for giveaways, for going to conferences, for producing episodes. We're not looking to make a living off of our podcast. We're just saying, if you support us this way, we can do more fun things on the podcast. That's what this is about. So check it out at store.dotheology.com. I'm drinking out of a Dale Bible Church mug here. Hello to my friends at Dale Bible Church, if you're listening. Oh, shout out to Aaron. Aaron's listening. I oh, yeah, probably is. so. But it uh, probably might taste better if it was in a 
keep doctrine in its place mug, don't you think? Ooh, shots fired at Dale Bible Church. Nothing against Dale, but everything about how great <laughs> or, those or mugs are. Or his church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, her, uh, definitions. Let's let's talk about some of these. We, we throw in the word hermeneutics around. We're talking about biblical interpretation. What actually are we talking about? And do you really need to listen? Again, yes, you do. Here we go. The hermeneutics, most at its most core and fundamental level, is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Now, that is a definition that is probably the most widely used in the history of talking about this concept of hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And we're going to talk about a little bit of what art and science means as it relates to that in a minute. But we have a couple other definitions that we think help us grasp the understanding of what we're actually talking about when we begin talking about this issue, this topic. Yeah, the art and science of biblical interpretation is the quote that Roy Zuck runs with in his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, which is a good book. It's kind of like reading an instruction manual, though, so you need lots of coffee to get through it, but it's a good book. Uh, We have a quote here from Elliot Johnson, who also wrote a book on hermeneutics, lots of books on hermeneutics out there, and we'll talk a lot about those in the weeks to come. But Elliot Johnson says that um, hermeneutics, the goal of hermeneutics is to know the capital A author and the lowercase a author's intended meaning as it is expressed in the text. So recognizing from the outset, there's a divine author and a human author, and he says intended meaning singular. They're one meaning as you uh, read through the text. A little bit more uh, complex definition coming from Grant Osborne, who wrote another kind of textbook on hermeneutics. It is that science which delineates principles or methods of in, for interpreting an individual author's meaning. And then he begins, begins to break down the concepts of science and art a little bit in a paragraph that follows. He says that it is a science since it provides a logical, orderly classification of the laws of interpretation. When we're studying scripture, there's certain rules that apply. You can't just come into things willy-nilly and just start throwing around whatever you want, and willy-nilly, that's the technical term. We learned that in Bible college. (laughs) Dr. Weil. You can't just use anything. (laughs) Mr. Weil, not Dr. Weil, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Willy-nilly. It's good good stuff. So there is that... There, there are laws, there are rules that we must observe as we approach studying the Scripture. But he also says it's an art because, he says, it is an acquired skill demanding both imagination and an ability to apply the laws to selected passages or books. This is not something that most people just sit down and are instantly experts at. No, we have to work at it. We have to practice the craft of interpretation, of, of learning how to use the tools, the resources that God has given us, how to wrestle through things. There's a process, and we get better at it over time as we grow in our ability to do that. And those two elements, that, it's, that there are laws and that it's a skill you need to develop within the bounds of the laws— uh, that is very important in our culture, where so many people are trying to strip away the bounds and the laws and the regulations, uh, orderliness of different things in life. Um, so, I mean, you, you could say marriage is an art and a science, right? I mean, in the same sense, where there are laws, there's an orderly classification, there are rules to how things go, and there are roles in within the marriage, but it's also an acquired skill, right, to be able to be a good and godly spouse within your marriage mm-hmm. as you acquire the skills necessary. I mean, you're developing, you're learning, you're growing. So um, it's important to say both of those things, that yes. it is there are laws and rules that apply to everybody, and within those, you acquire your skills. It's not a free-for-all. Yes. And it's important to recognize as well that when we're dealing with a divine text, this process is a spiritual process. Right? We are depending upon the leading of the Holy Spirit as we go about this process of interpreting God's Word and applying it into our lives. We need His illuminating work within us to help us work through a given text. So now we will get into an overview of some of the main views and approaches to hermeneutics today. We just had a pause because Ken had a plumber in his room. Yes. Maintenance guy pretending to be a plumber. 
But we're back. Sorry if that was an awkward cut. But um, as we think historically and go back to the um, different schools of thought in the early church, and this, this is largely geographically based, where Christians were geographically and their approach to the text kind of developed out of those communities that existed, there were two main views of hermeneutics. The Antiochian school, based around Antioch, and the Alexandrian school, based out of Alexandria. Uh, those two approaches to hermeneutics. The Antiochian school was more of a literal interpretation, whereas the Alexandrian school saw more hidden meaning and more allegory in the text of Scripture. Now, there are different places you can go to learn more about them. It's not our job to uh, give you a really detailed look at church history and hermeneutics throughout church history uh, here and now. But uh, just to give you an overview, that's kind of the two schools that have formed all the different hermeneutics that exist today. They're all reflections of that early church approach in one way or another. And so this is a broad brush that we're, we're painting with, but we would encourage you to look into that more and uh, see how those connect with these views that we're about to present to you. But as we get into today's hermeneutics and present to you a, a smattering of views here, we break, we're breaking them down into two categories, the invalid hermeneutics and the valid hermeneutics, not exhaustively going through every approach, but giving you a taste of what's out there. Yeah, so when we talk about invalid hermeneutics, we're defining that as hermeneutics that violate the presuppositions that we talked about earlier in this episode. The fact that we're dealing with a divine book, that Scripture is the Word of God and has authority. The fact that Scripture is understandable and non-contradictory, right? These these are key presuppositions and an invalid hermeneutic looks at those and says, ah, maybe those aren't true. Maybe we don't need to come to the text with those in mind. And so as a result, they get off base right at square one and cannot actually effectively interpret Scripture. So it ends up being an invalid hermeneutic. And we've got four just to highlight for you very, very briefly. The first is liberal higher criticism. This was born out of the Enlightenment over in uh, Germany and areas over there. It denies inspiration, divines divine characteristics of God's Word, denies the miraculous, and really views the Bible as more of a book of morals, myths, and fables that, hey, they're helpful and, and they're good to study, but not really anything that's authoritative for our lives. And if you're looking to get a, an insight into that approach, you could check out some of James White's debates with uh, those who would fall into the liberal higher, higher criticism camp. So... His debate with John Dominic Crossan is one of them, where you just hear how he's talking about Scripture, where it's basically a book that provides ethics for us today. We're not looking to prove that anything that actually, or that it says actually happened. So we're not talking about an actual flood. We're not talking even about an actual resurrection of Christ. But hey, it teaches or you how to be a Christ nice... even if Christ even existed. Right, right. But it teaches you how to be a nice guy. So hey, let's, let's extract that from Scripture. We say that's invalid. We also say that a pure allegorical approach to the scriptures is invalid, meaning as they read through the scriptures, those who take this approach, they're seeing a spiritual meaning behind every detail of the text, and it's up to the reader to draw all of that out. So there's uh, a lot of elements to this that um, are invalid. <laughs> uh, well, one, just... that's, that scriptures, they say scripture's unclear, basically, that you have to find the hidden meaning because the meaning isn't clear and it becomes very subjective at that point. Just just by way of illustration, so we know what kind of what we're talking about, uh, Origen was a early church father and he had all kinds of different ideas about the text in different ways, but his approach when he would interpret a passage allegorically, an example of that was when he was talking about Peter rowing a boat with two oars, He Origen looked at that text and says allegorically, one oar represents faith, and the other oar represents love. And so when, when Peter is rowing back to Jesus, he is exercising both faith and love as he comes to shore. So yeah. that's, it's, it's allegorical. Like, it's not in the text itself, and it is just what we would even say possibly even fanciful. Yeah. And if you've never seen what Augustine did to the Good Samaritan parable, you should Google that and have your mind blown by the nonsense that's in there. So are we saying that Origen and Augustine are in hell? No. But we're saying, at least in those instances, the hermeneutics they were using were most certainly invalid. 
just yes. totally outright invalid, and we wouldn't let anybody preach at our church that way. And we have to acknowledge as well that the concept of allegory and allegorical interpretation has been overused as a pejorative by, particularly I think by people that are more in our camp towards the Reformed hermeneutic and reform side of things, saying that, oh, if if you don't believe in the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, then you have allegorical interpretation. And we want to be careful to say, no, that's actually not what people in the Reformed camp are doing. There are people that do practice legit allegory, but I think the the pejorative of, oh, that's just allegorical interpretation, I think that's overused and it's not actually examples. Typology is not allegory. Yeah, we just have to be careful about beating someone over the head uh, by misrepresenting them in that way. Yes. A, th- <clears throat> a third invalid hermeneutic is Webb's redemptive movement hermeneutic. You want to walk through that one, Ken? Yeah, so there's a gentleman, the last name of Webb, who developed this idea where he essentially says, okay, if we can look at the trajectory of the biblical commands and morals that we find in the text, we can chart those kind of on a graph and see what was in play in the Old Testament, what was in play in the New Testament, and draw out implications for today based on that. And so he would say, oh, let's look at the test case of slavery. We see slavery practiced in the Old Testament. We see some of those ethics. Maybe he would say they're being reformed in the New Testament, and so we have a trajectory course coming into today where we all recognize, hey, slavery, not a good thing. And then he looked at a couple of other areas and said, based on this trajectory hermeneutic, that women can actually teach in the church today as pastors and function as elders, even though there's clear prohibitions against that in God's Word, he's using this trajectory hermeneutic to justify that practice for today. It's interesting, though, when he applies that same test case to the issue of homosexuality and other aberrant forms of of sexual behavior— He does not see that trajectory extending to today, at least he didn't at the time of the publication of that book. I have a feeling that if he were to write the same book today, he might argue for the practice of homosexuality being permissible today. So that's a concept where he's trying to draw implications, he's trying to draw a trajectory, he's not actually dealing with what the text says, and believing that the text has enduring meaning and significance that applies to us today. Yeah, he basically end up having to say that the Scripture is contradictory um, and yes. that it lacks authority. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the fourth invalid hermeneutic we'll present to you isn't—you uh, wouldn't really think of it as a hermeneutic, but it is. It's just an appeal to authority, where I think a lot of people camp out when they say, okay, Scripture's really confusing, it's really complicated— I don't know how to study it, I don't know what to believe, I'm just going to look up whatever John MacArthur said, I'm going to look up— whatever John Piper said, insert your favorite preacher here, and I'm just going to believe what they said. And appeals to authority aren't valid. Uh, that That's just saying, I'm going to let, let this person that I trust do the work and just latch on to whatever he's saying. And so many people, I think, camp out there, and it's wrong. It, it's yeah. basically saying Scripture isn't clear enough for me to study, so I just need to listen to someone else who's done the work and agree with him. This doesn't mean that those guys aren't helpful, right? This doesn't mean that we can never read and study what other people have written. We stand on the shoulders of those who have done great work before us Not in history. literally. No. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I want a picture of you standing on John MacArthur's shoulders. I just walk around standing on shoulders of people all the time. That's just <laughs> what I do. <laughs> but yeah, th- we, They're helpful, but they're not the authority. They are not the authority. These men can be wrong, and we need to recognize that. Which brings us to, okay, so those are some bad approaches to Scripture that we don't want to go those directions. Well, what are some valid approaches? How can we be consistent with the presuppositions that we've already laid out and come away with some good hermeneutics? Now, there are some different hermeneutical systems available today that different people practice that we are going to identify and say, hey, they're valid, even though we would disagree with them in their application and their conclusions and even on some of the consistency (laughs) with which they are applying the hermeneutic. Very difficult to talk about this accurately without misstepping, saying something wrongly. For instance, earlier in this episode, I said that there are multiple right ways to approach a text. We've edited that part out. There are not multiple right ways to approach a text. There are multiple valid ways to approach a text, but they're not all right. 
So. And that is a tricky language. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And we have to be, recognize the, the limitations that we're dealing with as human beings, right? And, and we see this in the secondary doctrine column in our in thinking theologically. Are there multiple valid approaches to baptism? Yes. Are they all absolutely right? They can't be because no. they yeah. contradict. So it's like a meme that you sent me yesterday that talking about pedo-baptism. Are pedo-baptists in sin? No. Are they in error from our Baptist perspective? Uh, yes, they are in error. So it's that type of nuance that's necessary to to try to find the words here of what we're trying to express because we're not we're not saying these people are in sin because they don't see every text exactly the way we do. You can't say that. You can't. So you've got to find a middle ground there because you also can't say, well, they're right and I'm right whenever your views contradict. That can't be the case either. They're somewhere right. in the middle. So that's where the language of valid and invalid comes into play, where a valid hermeneutic is one that is upholding the presuppositions. Again, I mentioned that already. But then is also going to be at least somewhat internally consistent, where there's a there's consistency throughout as they uh, begin to apply that hermeneutic. So it's it's difficult to wrestle with, but we think it's important to make those distinctions. Yeah. So, so starting uh, going through three valid hermeneutics that differ from one another, we can start by thinking about the theological interpretation of Scripture, which is probably the most complicated one. D.A. Carson has written about this, and some others have uh, added their comments on it. It's really become popular in the last 20, 30 years, something like that. Basically, it says, look, we all have theological presuppositions that we bring to the text about where we are on different theological uh, spectrum. And let's embrace it. Let's start with our theological presuppositions as we go to the text because we can't avoid it. So let's And we agree with the, that to a degree. To a degree. Yeah. Because we just um, laid out three presuppositions at the beginning of this episode. Right. Right. So the theological interpretation of Scripture recognizes it and embraces it to a degree farther than we probably would and argues that we ought to also hold our theology as a part of our presuppositions and interpret passages of Scripture based on what we already recognize as orthodox doctrine. So we interpret Scripture through the lens of primary doctrine, basically, which is all right if your primary doctrine is biblical. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're embracing a biblical orthodoxy, and say, all right, as I approach Scripture now, um, nothing can contradict this orthodoxy that I've already embraced. That's fine as long as that orthodoxy is, imber- is founded on biblical interpretation. So you, you kind of see how this is a, a circular, right? And it's out of order. We have to recognize that. It is out of order because where does biblical orthodoxy come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. We don't start with it and then put the Bible into that mold. We start with the Bible, and that establishes our orthodoxy. That is the correct order, because the Bible has the authority, not our articulation of doctrines. Our articulation of doctrine doesn't have the authority. However, we also can't escape the fact that we're Christians, and as we approach the text, we're not going to say, oh, this very clearly opposes a core doctrine of Christianity. We're not going to do that when we interpret. So they're recognizing these presuppositions as we recognize presuppositions, but they're doing it to a degree farther than us and embracing it in a way that we're uncomfortable with. Yeah, they're bringing more, they're front-loading more of the theology than what we would be comfortable front-loading. Because really it begins to extend into more than just, I think, just the primary doctrine. I think the the theological interpretation of Scripture begins to extend into secondary things, and they're presupposing all sorts of things and bringing that to a text before they even begin examining it. And it's no surprise that this method of interpretation is quite popular in Catholic circles who have their doctrine handed down to them within this long-standing church, you know, this pure line of church that as they view it and therefore they embrace ecclesiastically what has been given to them in the church first and foremost and then they go to the Bible. Yeah. So 
it's really no wonder that that's the case. Uh, so we'll just leave that there for now. Uh, yep. Second valid hermeneutic with which we disagree still, but we recognize as valid, is the redemptive historical hermeneutic. Now, in the first time we recorded this episode, I got to explain this one. Yeah, we recorded beforehand and we're re-recording. First time we've ever done that because this subject is so tricky. But now, Ken, I'm going to toss it over to you and let you explain it this time because this is where <laughs> I started to say a lot of things that caused us to have to re-record. So, and in order to avoid that kind of issue, I'm going to say very few things. <laughs> very wise. That's very yeah. proverbial of you. So there are, there are a few foundational texts that undergird the redemptive historical hermeneutic. And one of them is Luke 24, 27, which is in the context of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And he makes the comment about how he was explaining to the disciples everything in the scriptures, everything in the Old Testament that was referring to himself. Now, a lot of guys that embrace this hermeneutical approach, they take that text and they say, oh, this means that everything in the Old Testament points in some way to Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Everything is about Christ. And so when we're studying an Old Testament text, job number one is to find Jesus Christ. We got to find him there and we got to find how this text either is a type of Christ, it alludes to Christ, it points to Christ, uh, illustrates Christ in some way. We got to find that first and foremost, that everything is about Christ. So we end up with a lot of types and symbols of Christ throughout the Old Testament and many Old Testament prophecies become fulfilled typologically in the church. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just Jesus, but it's the church too. Everything either points to Jesus or the church, kind of starting from the, from the position <clears throat> that what Jesus has done and what the church is, is the finish line, basically, the besides the second coming. Fulfillment. Yeah, it's the ultimate it, fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Right. They don't they don't deny the second coming, of course. So they still see that as future, but it's basically what Jesus has accomplished and this church that he's building, we're basically at the finish line except for Jesus's return which which finishes it and puts us into a new heaven and new earth. And so the church then too becomes really the hub of a lot of the fulfillment that's um prophesied about in the Old Testament. Now we want to say what we just said is very simplistic and reductionistic. So we want to recognize that. If you're listening and you embrace a redemptive historical hermeneutic, there's probably all sorts of things like, well, you're not quite uh, this, that, the other thing. Okay, we, our job, we want to represent you fairly and accurately, and we do intend to talk more about the redemptive historical hermeneutic in future episodes where we unpack this more fully and begin to wrestle with the, that approach and what we think are flaws in the reasoning. And so we're going to deal with that in a future time. But even when we do that, we want to present this system in such a way that even someone who embraces this would say, yeah, you're, you are accurately describing our method of interpretation. Yeah. So if we do ever say something wrong, we're sorry. <laughs> and, and we're doing <laughs> and, our And that's best. not our goal. I mean, we recognize the, the people who embrace this hermeneutic are outside of our hermeneutic or our, our church circles, basically. Mm -hmm. And so we are doing our best to read original sources by Graham Goldsworthy, by Great Greatness, Great Enous, I don't know how to say his last name, David Murray, Brian Chapel, others. Uh, there are several. Elliot Johnson. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Dennis Johnson. Dennis books, Johnson. Books that we've ordered that we're studying and um, reading original sources, marking them up so that way in future episodes we can hopefully represent more accurately. And um, is that all we want to say about that? I think there's where we should leave it for now. Okay. <laughs> and it did come to mind, too, that uh, this isn't the first episode we've re-recorded. We re-recorded our interview with Josh Bice. Shout out to Josh Bice, uh, the G3 network, who also holds to a redemptive historical hermeneutic. Okay, uh, third, <laughs> third hermeneutic we'll bring up in the valid realm, the one we hold to, is the grammatical, historical contextual hermeneutic, also known as the literal hermeneutic, some people say. Ken, you don't like that word literal for our hermeneutic. Which Not a fan. can seem weird because it's like, well, why would you run away from a word that is good in a lot of ways? What's your beef? Yeah, so this hermeneutic historically has been embraced as the literal hermeneutic. Uh, you open up 
Charles Ryrie, as he is articulating this hermeneutic, he will use the word literal. And a lot of guys in our stream of thoughts would use that word. The problem I have with that word is I think it conjures up a false idea in the minds of those who would be the opposition about what it actually is that we're doing when we're approaching a text with a literal meaning. The, the pejorative against us with the terminology of literal is that, oh, you, you guys, you can't understand types. You can't understand shadows. You can't understand figurative language. Is everything's literal? Oh, did Jesus literally have you know, a bronze face and, and you know, a, a literal sword coming out of his mouth? Listen, when we're approaching a text literally, we're referring to what the original author literally intended to communicate even when he used figurative language, types, and shadows, and things like that, but it's based in what the original author intended to communicate, and he can intend to communicate with figurative language. So we do interpret figurative language figuratively. The disagreement of argument will come into play more than likely where which texts are figurative and which ones ought to be taken at legit face value. And for the majority of the rest of this series, what we're going to be doing is actually explaining our hermeneutic more and contrasting it with the redemptive historical hermeneutic. That's going yeah. to be happening quite a bit in the in the rest of the series. So if you want to talk about that more, just wait. There's lots of content coming up to talk about that. Okay. And we, we should just say real quick, base level, grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic, each text needs to be understood in its own grammatical and historical context without importing meaning from another text. And that's our position and what we hold to. That good. we will unpack further later on. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Um, say that one more time before we move on. So, because that, that's a very important point, and I don't want to like breeze over it, even though we're going to unpack, unpack it more later. Say it one more time so that way people can kind of grab onto it. So our position is that each text needs to be understood in its own grammatical and historical context without importing meaning from another text. We want to take each text, what the original author intended to communicate when he wrote that with the words that he used on its own for what it teaches. All right. So that's what you can look forward to hearing more about because there are lots of questions that come up from that. Yes. Now, to finish off this episode, let's uh, consider some additional items. Uh, first, you might be hearing us and then coming to the conclusion in your mind, well, this is just kind of arbitrary when you go to pick a hermeneutic. Okay, you just gave us three valid hermeneutics. Is it just, you know, flip flip a coin, narrow it down to two and flip a coin, or blindfold yourself and throw a dart or whatever? I mean, is this just totally arbitrary? And we want to make clear to you it is not arbitrary because God, number one, gave us a brain, okay? We can think through these things. He's given us logic. He's given us reasoning. We can employ all those things and think through it. And secondly, the scriptures themselves offer direction, offer clues on how to approach interpreting scripture. And uh, we, we can't just ignore that. We need to embrace the model we find by the authors of Scripture themselves. Yeah, and I think this is this is a point that both people that embrace a redemptive historical and a grammatical to, uh, grammatical historical contextual hermeneutic, they're both going to say the same thing. Well, Scripture actually gives us clues about how we interpret the rest of Scripture, and we're going to make our case for why we think what we believe is, is correct. But at the base level, we have to, we have to recognize that whenever an either an Old Testament or a New Testament author used an earlier text, that he did so contextually, understanding the, the original author's intent and, and applying it contextually based on what was written previously. The authors of the Bible read what was formally written with great care, with great care about the author's intent and never changed the meaning. <laughs> now, people are going to be squealing at their brakes. Wait, wait a second. What about uh, this text? That text? This text? That text? What uh -huh. about? What about? Uh -huh. We recognize that there are difficult texts, okay? And to help us work through some of those difficult texts, we are we have an interview coming up with Michael Vlock, who has written a book on the 
New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's a fantastic resource, and we're going to talk to him about some of those things. But what we have to recognize, and what even those who embrace a different hermeneutic than us, what they have to recognize as well, at a bare minimum, we have to acknowledge that the overwhelming usage of later writers of previous revelation is undeniably contextual. In the New Testament, when they are quoting or referring to the Old Testament, yeah, even the most reformed among us would say the vast, vast, vast majority are contextual uses. Now, they're going to hold out on a select number of passages and say, what about how they did this, how they used that? Well, we'll talk about those separately, but for now, just recognize, zoom out and see the percentage bar on there, and 98% of the usages in the New Testament are contextual, even the most Reformed would say. So that's an an important note, for sure. Yes. Um, We want to also reiterate this point, uh, you know, asking the question, can different hermeneutics or opposing hermeneutics be equally valid? And we want to refer you to Season 2, Episode 7. The title was, Can Opposing Views Both Be Valid? And we do recognize we could have said things a little sharper, clearer, could have tightened up the script a little bit, but that's okay. Um, the The principles still remain. I mean, valid valid hermeneutics are those hermeneutics which affirm our presuppositions about the Bible, that it has authority, that it is non-contradictory, and that it's clear. Any hermeneutic that opposes those things really just destroys the whole purpose of the Bible uh, as revelation from God to us. And so all valid hermeneutics will affirm those things, and they can be considered valid even though they oppose each other. They're still within the realm of validity. Not saying they're all right, but they're valid. Yes. Now, we're, we're going to make a case for our hermeneutic, but uh, are we making a case that any system is perfect and without any flaws? Well, first, we recognize that the only one who has uh, infinite knowledge and is omniscient is God himself, right? And, and guess what? We're not God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully that's not shocking revelation to anybody, but you are we, not we God. I am Mormon not God. Listeners. Uh, I'm in Utah. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> but the only being with perfect, infinite knowledge is God. And we recognize that we, in contrast to that, we are sinners affected by the fall. And so we have to approach these conversations with humility, recognizing that, hey, this there's some difficult things here, and our reasoning, our logic— there's opportunities for there to be flaws there without us being able to identify those and see those. So we want to approach this with humility as we talk about these things. And last on that is we are venturing into the realm of secondary doctrine when we start talking about these different hermeneutical approaches to Scripture and the different resulting theological systems and applications. This is secondary doctrine. So these are things that that we're holding with an open hand, recognizing that, hey, there's a possibility that I could be wrong on these things, and that those who differ with me in these areas, hey, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I need to show grace to them, and I need to love them. And one of us, we can't both be right. We may both be wrong, but we can't both be right. Yeah. But we need to approach it with grace and humility. So to wrap this up, our hermeneutic matters. The way we interpret Scripture matters. And every faulty interpretation or theological position, every faulty theological position, is a result of a faulty hermeneutic, or the faulty application of a hermeneutic. Our theological conclusions on a variety of secondary issues will be determined by our hermeneutic. So it's incredibly important that we think through these things, because just because they're secondary, that doesn't mean they're unimportant. And you've heard us say that so many times. (laughs) There's so many episodes we could refer you to. These are very important. They determine where you go to church. They determine what denomination you might be associated with. They determine your comfort level and partnering with other ministries. And right on our chart, it says they're worldview shaping. Yes, they do shape your worldview, and some of them, in a lot of ways. And so it's important that you consider your hermeneutic and to think carefully about it, as you do so, it will arm you as you seek to be defended uh, against heresies, uh, to be a good student of Scripture, to build up orthodoxy, to deepen your understanding of definitional doctrines to Christianity. All of that is is incredibly important and related to the hermeneutic that you use, the interpretive grid that you apply to the scriptures. As you think carefully about your hermeneutic, you'll be able to 
better discern the accuracy of other teachers and uh, to have just sharper discernment out there in the internet world and you're interacting with podcasts like ours or whatever YouTube things pop up, um, you'll just be sharper for it and hopefully more honorable uh, in your Christian living because of it. Yes. So what's coming up ahead for us? As we chart a course, as we look ahead, we've got an interview that is going to be releasing after this episode with Dr. Daryl Bach, the great Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary. So we had a great conversation with him. We're excited to get that out to you. We have scheduled a conversation with Michael Vlock. We mentioned him already. He is a Bible and theology professor over at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He used to be over at Master's Theological Seminary for many years. So we're excited for that conversation as well. And, and perhaps other conversations with other hermeneutical guys whose last names end with the syllable Ock. <laughs> Bach and Vlock and yeah. I don't know. We'll just we'll, we'll yeah. go searching for that very specific uh, type of person. <laughs> It's unorthodox criteria, we recognize, but hey, you do what you can. <laughs> we, should have, we should have interviewed them at the same time. I don't know if that's ever happened, and we could have just called it hermeneutics with Bach and Vlock. That would have been fun. Maybe that'll happen in the future. Maybe. But as we move forward with, with more conversations, we want to interact. We are going to interact. We have been interacting with original sources who do embrace a different hermeneutic than ourselves so that we can give a fair representation and a fair critique and wrestle with those things fairly. So we're going to do that and hopefully present those things fairly and accurately. And we're going to work through just uh, a defense of our own hermeneutic and seeking to anticipate and answer objections as they come. And this is where you, the listener, it really is going to be very big and helpful. The most helpful for you will be is if you have questions, if you're reaching out to us and giving us the opportunity to interact with you on these things, if we can answer your questions, if we can work through some difficult texts together, if you reach out to us and interact with us, if there's something that wasn't clear, you're not understanding, a disagreement, that will only make this conversation better. So we encourage you to do that. Show at dotheology.com is our email. We've got the Twitter, at dotheology. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash dotheology. And you can leave a comment on YouTube where this airs as well. All sorts of different avenues where you can reach out to us, and we encourage you to do so. We really would love to get your interaction. And you can financially support the podcast at store.dotheology.com, store.dotheology.com. And until next time, do theology.